today is resurrection day. This is the highest holy day for the New Testament Christian. However, oftentimes we have to be reminded of that fact because most of us are prone to think that Christmas is the highest holy day for us as believers. This is because we celebrate Christmas with such grandeur and spectacle that it leaves a great impression on our hearts and minds. Plus, getting all those nice gifts helps to leave a great impression on our hearts and minds also. But as wonderful as it is to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, we must never forget that our highest holy day is resurrection day because our faith rests on the fact that we have a risen savior. Our faith rests on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Our faith rests on the fact that he died and the third day he rose from the tomb as the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ is not resurrected, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Christ had not resurrected, they would not resurrect. Paul thought it was important to remind the Corinthians of this truth. Therefore, I think it's important for us to continually remind ourselves of this truth. It's important for us to remind ourselves of the fact that because we have a risen Savior, our salvation is secure. Because we have a risen Savior, our redemption is secure. Because we have a risen Savior, our hope is secure. And that is the title of the sermon that I'll be preaching today, A Risen Savior, A Secure Hope. And this sermon is based on the scriptures found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. So please open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now this book was written by the Apostle Paul right about A.D. 60 to 62. And Paul wrote it to the believers in Ephesus to instruct them as to how to become true followers of Jesus Christ. And he does this by emphasizing both doctrine and practice. During the first three chapters, he emphasizes doctrine. And during the last three chapters, he emphasizes how to live out those doctrines. And in chapter one, which I'll be preaching from today, he emphasizes doctrine during verses three through 14 by explaining to the believers at Ephesus the tremendous and manifold blessings that they have as believers in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 15 through 23, he prays for God to help them to understand the magnitude and the greatness of those blessings. Given that truth, I'm going to start out by reading in verses 15 through 23. Now here the Apostle Paul 
says to the Ephesians, he says, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowing of him. And here are the verses that I'll be preaching. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of his, the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this time, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Now here, when the apostle Paul begins in verse 18, after he commends the Ephesians for their faithfulness and he petitions God to give them wisdom. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now with the use of the word heart, the apostle Paul is not referring to that place which we consider the center of our emotions. Within our construct, within our society, when we use the term heart, we normally use it to refer to that place from where our emotions emanate from. But for the Hebrews at that point in time in history and throughout the New Testament, in its normal context, when they use the word heart as Paul uses it right now in this particular scripture, he's using it to refer to the center of the human mind. He's using it to refer to that place from where wisdom and knowledge comes from. He is using it to refer to the center of the mind from where our deepest thoughts come from. And therefore, Paul is not requesting for God to enlighten the Ephesians' emotions. He is petitioning God to give them understanding. He is petitioning God to enlighten their minds, to give them wisdom, and to give them comprehension. And what is it that he's seeking for God to help them and ultimately you and I to comprehend? He goes on to pray and state that he prays for God to help them so that they will know what is the hope of his calling. Now the hope of his calling is a direct reference to the magnificent nature of God's redemptive plan. 
This is Paul requesting for God to enable those believers at Ephesus and you and I to understand the remarkable nature of God's redemptive plan. That redemptive plan which includes our election. For as Paul says earlier in chapter 1 in Ephesians 1-4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be presented holy and blameless before him. In other words, before God created humanity, before Adam and Eve graced the beautiful plains of that paradise called Eden, before you and I formed our very first breath in our lungs, God chose to save us. He chose to elect us onto salvation. Even though he knew that when he formed us in our mother's womb and birthed us, we would come to seek to usurp his authority. We would come to be his very enemies. And he still created us and ultimately justified us. And this is what Paul is seeking for the believers at Ephesus and for you and I to understand this magnificent aspect of God's redemptive plan. He also wants us to understand the redemption aspect of God's salvific plan. For as he says early in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Of that points to Jesus Christ, the one and only son of God, the author and finisher of our faith, the shepherd and bishop of our souls, coming down out of the boundless paradigm that is heaven onto this corrupt earth, wrapping himself in the frailty of human flesh, then sacrificing himself upon the cross and redeeming us from the condemnation that awaited us. He purchased us from the very clutches of Satan. And when we place our faith in him, we are credited with his perfect righteousness and we're given the free gift of salvation. Paul seeks for the believers in Ephesus and for you and I to understand this great aspect of God's redemptive plan. He seeks for us to also understand the sanctification aspect of God's redemptive plan. For as he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, in him we have redemption through his blood. But he also says in verse 5.23, he says, may the peace of God sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and souls be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That points to God working the life of us as believers, maturing us in our faith, purifying us of our sins, conforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ right up until the point that we take our very last breath so that he can present us blameless before him. These are the wonderful aspects of God's magnificent redemptive plan that the Apostle Paul seeks for us to understand. But he doesn't stop there in his beseeching God. 
He continues to petition God to help the Ephesians and you and I to understand what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is a direct reference to the consummation of God's redemptive plan. When each and every believer stands before him fully glorified and because we are joint ears with Christ, because we're co-heirs with the Prince of Peace, with the King of Kings, all that he possesses in heaven, we inherit. All that he has inherited, we also inherit. All that he owns in heaven, we also own. All of the treasures and glory that are Jesus Christ, we also possess. Paul seeks for us to understand the richness of our position as believers in Jesus Christ. He seeks for us to understand the richness of our position as the redeemed of God. And after he makes this petition, he goes on to pray for those believers in Ephesus. And in verse 19, he says that he hopes that they come to understand what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He says these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now here, the Apostle Paul is praying for God to help the believers at Ephesus to understand the great power that is at work in the life of the believer. And this great power is solely reserved for the believer because Paul says that it's toward us who believe, meaning the power of God is reserved for the person who recognizes that they are spiritually bankrupt. It's reserved for the person who recognizes that they are morally depraved. It's reserved for the person who recognizes that their sins separate them from the holy God of all creation. It's for the person who recognizes that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And it is only through his sacrifice on the cross for their sins that they receive the free gift of salvation. And it is at the point of salvation that the believer receives the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. That points to the fact that it is at the point of conversion, at the point of our salvation, that we receive the Holy Spirit of God. And as Jesus Christ told his apostles in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So it is at the point of salvation that the believer receives the power to live a life that is pleasing to God. 
It is at the point of salvation that the believer receives the power to live a life according to the holy scriptures of the 66 books in the canon. It is at the point of salvation that the believer receives the power to live a life that places a smile on the face of our holy God of all creation and causes all the angels in the heaven to rejoice at one person coming to believe. This is what Paul is seeking for the believers in Ephesus and for you and I to understand about the power of God that is at work in our lives. But Paul does not stop there in his petitions to God concerning the power of God that is at work in our lives. For he says in verse 20 concerning this power, this is the power which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now there when Paul proclaims that this is the power that he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He is explaining to those Ephesian believers that the same power that is at work in the life of the Christian is the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. The same power that secures our salvation. The same power that secures our redemption, the same power that secures our hope is the same power that secured Jesus Christ's resurrection. Therefore, we should never doubt that just as God faithfully raised his beloved son from the grave, he will also faithfully raise you and I from the grave and usher us into the inheritance that awaits us in heaven. Listen, when the Corinthians doubted the resurrection of the dead, Paul responded to them by affirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For we responded to those Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6, and he told them, For I delivered to you that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 witnesses. So Paul quell the doubts of the Corinthians by affirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not only did he affirm his resurrection, he also affirmed his appearing to over 500 witnesses. And this is how we know that we have the right Messiah. This is how we know that we have the right Savior. 
This is how we know that we have the right mediator. This is how we know that we have the right advocate. This is how we know that we have the right high priest. This is how we know that we have the right king of kings and the right Lord of lords. Because over 500 witnesses throughout the annals of history testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So no matter how much the skeptics try to cast doubt on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have 500 witnesses who have testified to his bodily resurrection. Therefore, we can trust that Jesus Christ's reconciliation work is real. We can trust that his work of redemption is real. And we can trust that his work of salvation through his death upon the cross is real. And therefore, we can also trust that when that angel at the tomb said, he is risen, he is risen indeed. After Paul makes this wonderfully clear concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he goes on to say that God used his power to seat him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now there he is speaking about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And he is indicating that the same power that God used to ascend Jesus Christ into heaven is the same power that he will use to ascend the believer into heaven. And Paul is so sure about this fact that he actually speaks about it in the past tense. He's so sure about it that in Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, he spoke about it as if it's happened already. For he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So there Paul declared that God in his eternal plan, he has already raised us up with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. He declared that he has already seated us along with Jesus Christ in his heavenly kingdom. Therefore, we know that the believer's ascension is secure. And we firmly know that our future glorification is secure. And once Paul makes this evident via this beautiful petition to our Holy Father in heaven, he goes on to state in verse 21 concerning the power of God. He says that by the power of God, he seated Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only at this time, but also in the age to come. Now there Paul is imploring those Ephesians and you and I to focus on the position and the rank of Jesus Christ. 
For he states that God raised him and seated him above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Now those four terms are ancient Jewish terms that referred to angelic beings. So here Paul is proclaiming that God gave Jesus Christ a rank that is above all angelic beings, including all of the holy angels in heaven and all of the fallen angels, including Satan. But his rank does not stop there. For he says that he was given the rank above every name that is named. That is Paul explaining that God has given Jesus Christ a rank not only above all the holy angels and the fallen angels, he's also given him a position that is above all human beings, including all those who are saved and all those who are unsaved. But his rank does not stop there. For God, for the apostle Paul says that that rank and that position is not only for this time, but for also for the age to come. Meaning that Jesus Christ has a position and a rank that is above all beings for all of eternity. That makes him the preeminent one. That makes him the eternal one. That makes him the God, bishop, and shepherd of our souls. And Paul goes on to speak about this heavenly rank that God has given to his beloved son, Jesus Christ. For he goes on to declare that in verse 22, that he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now there when he says that he put all things in subjection under, under his feet. He is indicating that not only has God given Jesus Christ rank over all beings, he's giving him a rank over all things in the universe. When he says that he has placed all things in subjection under him, he is proclaiming that God has bestowed his beloved son with the rank that places him in a position to where he's supreme over absolutely everything in this universe. Therefore, Christ is supreme over all living matter and all non-living matter. There's absolutely nothing in this world that is not subject to him. But his rank doesn't stop there, for the apostle Paul says that God gave him as head over all things to the church. So there he's making it completely clear that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the supreme head. Not the Pope. Can I get an amen? <laughs> not the Cardinal. Not the pastor. Not the people in the pews. Jesus Christ and he himself is the supreme head of the church. And he goes on to say, which is his body? Meaning, we, the body of believers, we make up the body of Jesus Christ. 
It is us whom he's chosen to glorify himself through. It is us whom he's chosen to magnify his majesty through. And Paul goes on to say that we are the fullness of him, meaning that Jesus Christ does not consider himself to be complete until the church is complete. What a fascinating truth that the holy God of all creation does not consider himself to be complete until every last believer whom he's elected unto salvation comes to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This reflects the magnificent love that Jesus Christ has for the church. And this is the church that Jesus Christ died for. This is the church that Jesus Christ resurrected for. And because he rose from the dead, our election is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our salvation is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our sanctification is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our reconciliation is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our redemption is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our perfection is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our glorification is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our treasures in heaven is secure. Because he rose from the dead, our hope is secure. Because he rose from the dead, we will also rise and live with him forever and ever in his eternal kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, you are so good to us. We thank you for sacrificing your precious son on our behalf. And we ask you please help us to subject ourselves to you and to fulfill that first commandment that you have given us, to love you with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. Help us to honor the great sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and help us to live the empowered life that we are given through his resurrection, through the Holy Spirit power that we are given at the point that we are saved. Help us there, God, to embrace that power that is within each and every one of us, that we may live a life that is a sweet aroma unto your throne. Please bless the rest of this day that we may glorify you and magnify you as you so rightfully deserve. In Jesus' victorious name we pray, amen.